You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Sometimes, you know, we're out in restaurants and we'll we'll see a couple that's roughly our age and you know, they'll be seated across the table from each other. Uh, and, and they're not talking at and then, all. And they're not talking. They just, you know, they, they, you, you, can, you can hear their cutlery. This is Dr. Lisa Belial and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 238, Wayfinding, airing for the first time on Sunday, April 10th, 2016. The Wayfinder schools have been helping at-risk Maine students for decades. In 2011, Maine's first alternative high school, the Community School, merged with century-old organization Opportunity Farm to form the Wayfinder Schools. Today we speak with Wayfinder board member Barbara Russo and her husband Richard Russo, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, about their work with the school, their life as a couple for the past 43 years, and Richard's newest novel, Everybody's Fool. Thank you for joining us. Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, the front room, the grill room, and the corner room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. Today it's my great pleasure to have in the studio two individuals who are well known within Maine and um, probably nationally, internationally. Barbara (laughs) Russo is a real estate professional at Legacy Properties Sotheby's International Realty, who is also a board member of the Wayfinder Schools. She is married to Richard Russo, also known as Rick, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist whose newest novel, Everybody's Fool, is a sequel to Nobody's Fool and will be released on May 3rd. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with me today. It's great to be here. Great. Thanks for having us. Barbara, you have um, worked with the Wayfinder Schools for a very long time now, mm-hmm. since your days of living in the Camden area. Correct. Why is this an important organization for you? Well, um, because it saves kids' lives. Um, I mean, that's that's the short of it. Um, I started working there um as a volunteer in 1999, we had just moved to Camden and I was looking for um, something to become involved in and through um, a friend at a swimming class um, told me that uh, at that time it was a community school um, and she said they were looking for uh, people to help on a capital campaign. 
So I volunteered and fell in love with the students, the staff, and the, the concept and what they were doing um, to working with young teens who had dropped out of school. Um, and I, I just became very fond of everything about it and um, a year later joined the board. And so it's been, it's been a very, very long journey. But um, it, save, it, it, it saves these kids. Um, they, for whatever reasons, they're very vulnerable. Um, they've, they've dropped out of school for all kinds of reasons. Um, abuse, physical and emotional abuse, drugs, um, didn't fit in with other um, high school kids. And um, so the community school takes takes them in, it's now Wayfinders, but took them in uh, in a residential program and um, they finished their high school. Uh, we were an accredited school, they actually got a high school diploma and give them the skills to move on in their lives and uh, work, work with their families, their friends, and become part of the community rather than um, being on welfare or yeah. what other things that young kids get into when they don't have their diplomas. So this must be an interesting contrast for you, Rick, because you spend many years teaching at Colby. And that's an educational institution of a very different sort. Mm -hmm. So you, in your family, you had the chance to experience this broad range of um, education and why education was important and who benefits from education and in what ways. As you were working with Barbara and Barbara was working with the Wayfinder schools, what types of things did you notice? Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I've been, I've, I've taught at Colby, I taught before Colby at a, at a, at a, a number of state, um, uh, state universities before that. So I've, I've really, as a teacher, I've run the entire gamut. And of course, coming from a small mill town in upstate New York, um, uh, I was uh, a first-generation college student myself. So, um, and also, um, you know, seeing, seeing how vulnerable these kids are in the community school uh, was personal at the community school, the Wayfinder schools <laughs> now. Um, yeah, old habits die hard. Huh? Yeah, they do. <laughs> but um, um, it, it, it took me back to my own, to my own experience of um, uh, uh, going to school in, in Gloversville, New York, and I remembered how vulnerable, uh, how vulnerable I felt at the time. And now, of course, you know, the ante is just, is just upped now. I mean, kids, kids have all the same pressures that I had as an eighth grader, ninth grader, um, uh, and all of that. But on top of that, on top of that now you've got kind of cyberbullying and, and the, the kinds of... It's, it's really hard for kids who are not fitting in to find a place to be, to just survive these years with, with um, so many more pressures now than they had when I was growing up. And when I was growing up, those pressures felt full and sufficient. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have wanted any more. So, so watching these kids from the Wayfinder School um, simply find a place to exist, a safe place, a safe harbor, mm -hmm. where they're not just completely always um, uh, under the gun, always, always pressured socially and uh, and and in other ways, and to give them a chance to heal, it's it's just it's just wonderful to watch. 
You also have two daughters that you um, have successfully raised into adulthood, mm-hmm. and they have their own experience with education. Um, how did this play into your work with the Wayfinder Schools? Did they were they interested in the work you were doing? Did they find any valuable experiences out of the things that you were doing oh, with Wayfinder? Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, in fact, um, both of our daughters and their husbands have done work at um, for the school. Um, our son-in-law Tom um, worked at, at Wayfinder School. Um, actually. We, at the community school in Camden when as they were living there as a teacher. He was a teacher there. Um, yeah, he taught um, art and um, absolutely loved it. Kate volunteered uh, at the school, also worked with, with Tom on art projects with the, with the students. And um, then Emily and Steve, Emily's our daughter, older daughter, uh, when they moved to um, Camden um, after Steve graduated from college, uh, from graduate school, um, they both volunteered at the school um, tutoring, and um, they, all four of them, have been invaluable to Rick and I in helping, um, in helping with that. And I remember when they were growing up too. I mean, our our daughters are in their thirties now, and um, and they have become. These exceptionally wonderful, I say proudly, yeah, <laughs> young yeah. women. Um, but you know, they were thirteen at, at at one point. They had they had their despite being smart and kind and good. They had their they had their struggles, both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I still remember because I was the one who was home. Barbara was still up the hill at Colby, and and often I would be the one who was home when when the kids came home. Um, and I can remember um, Emily. I don't think she'd mind me telling this story. Why, you know, coming in the door, I hear, I would hear the door slam so so hard that the whole house would shake, and I'd hear her scream, "My life sucks!" <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I can still. I mean, Kate. I could see her. Sometimes I would see her walking up the street towards the house, and she had on that enormous that enormous backpack, and she was a little wisp of a kid anyway, and she had this enormous backpack on. And I could see from the look on her face that there were days when, when she had struggled in school, when, when, when things that she was never going to explain to me, uh, things mm-hmm. that she was never going to tell me about. You could see it on her face. And, and, and seeing her walk up the street towards me with this, this, this despairing uh, uh, or sometimes fearful expression on her face, that was the seed for for Tick Roby in, in Empire Falls, a, a girl a girl who I introduce in that novel, looking exactly like my daughter Kate, bearing the weight of the world on her shoulders. It's it's interesting because in reading Everybody's Fool, there's an there's another, I wouldn't say exactly the same, but there is a similar character, a young woman who clearly has some intelligence, but she's got one eye that isn't quite right. Right. And mm-hmm. um, she is holding a lot of kind of psychic pain for mm-hmm. her family. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm not necessarily thinking of your children, but I'm thinking of people um, who are are carrying a lot of psychic mm-hmm. and emotional pain for their families, which might actually make it difficult for them to succeed in, in quote, normal school. Right, right. These are the kinds of kids that get bullied and abused and made fun of. And and um, this, this particular character um, in Everybody's Fool um, fascinated me because it, even as I was writing about her, it wasn't clear to me whether she was 
slow as everybody seems to think she is, mm -hmm. whether she's intellectually uh, slow, compromised in some way, or whether, in fact, she might be some sort of savant because she has a kind of stillness about her, a kind of, um, of a kind of, uh, she she takes everything in. She misses almost she misses almost nothing, and um, so it's it's. And I think there are a lot of kids who are who in in school, um, for one reason or another, maybe perfectly smart, maybe and and maybe. They look behind, but in some in some ways they're ahead, and we only kind of have one metric for judging success within schools. And so these so these kids that that sometimes they don't speak up, uh, the teacher ignores them because they're not you know they're not causing problems. They're simply ignored, and over a period of years, it's it seems as if they're it seems as if they're slow. Everybody diagnoses them as as being slow learners, when in fact. You know, if nobody's paying attention to them, they may be ahead of the game. <laughs> we, yeah. we we just don't know. But in but in large school environments, they tend to get lost. And the one of the beauties I think of the of the Wayfinder schools is just that they're small. It's impossible to hide. They'll find out. We'll we'll, we, we'll find out what these kids are about, mm -hmm. and and if there's something holding them back, what it is. Um, that that's much more likely to take place in in a in a in a really small, intimate atmosphere, I think, than in you know a huge regional high school. But I what I love so much about the Wayfinder schools, uh, um, in, in terms of the students, is that the, the we have fa fabulous staff, um, but they know how to reach. Um, these students strengths and it's all strength based um, they don't come in with um, you know all they come in with enough baggage anyway um, having dropped out of school their substance abuse all kinds of abuse um, but they do have strengths all students have something that they're that they're good at and the school the staff is so good at drawing that out and and and, and um, making sure that that's what their focus is, and then they move on in terms of academics. Um, and one child may my love music, so figure they figure out a way to make that part of their everyday lives. And um, it, it's it's not a punitive type of, of um, program at all. Um, and they use a lot of social uh, social justice practices um, and to keep these kids uh, moving and. It's it, it's fabulous. What and after a regimen of failure that some that so exactly. many of these kids are so used to. They're so used they're so used to failure yep. that 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 they that, that I mean that's their that's their lives and and to and to realize that they do have strengths mm -hmm. to have somebody find something and say you know something you're pretty good at this. Have you ever thought about you know um, it's 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 huge. It's huge for them. They wouldn't necessarily even find it on their own. Barbara, I was mm -hmm. interested to hear that you come from a large family. Yes. How many people in your family? I'm one of ten children. And I think you're the second one? Second oldest, yes, and the first daughter. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you also you come from Tucson. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. I grew up there, yeah. So that's kind of an interesting and unique combination of things. We don't see a lot of people who have relocated to Maine from Tucson. And <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> and in this day and age, there are not even that many people who come from large families. That's true. Right. So right. what do you see as the similarities and differences between um, where you grew up and Maine? 
well, first of all, the weather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and Tucson, Tucson uh, when, when I grew up there, wasn't that big of a city. Um, and by the time we left in 1981, it had grown tremendously. Astonishing and, growth. Um, and now it's even bigger than, than that. It's just huge. Um, but yeah, they have, a, they have a great car culture out there. They too, have though. a very great. Car culture. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah. You couldn't. You can't go anywhere without getting into a car first. Um, you couldn't go to the grocery. You have to go to the grocery store. You have to get in the car. You want to go to a movie. You have to get in the car. If you want to uh, go out to dinner, you have to get in the car. It's you know. I mean, I, I grew up in a in a in a subdivision development thing in the 1960s and. No sidewalks. Um, no, si- uh, no sidewalks. <laughs> yeah. If for With some, all that if land for, and if for no s- sidewalks. If for some absurd reason you actually did want to walk someplace, you'd either have to walk across people's yards or, 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 in, the street. In, or in the street. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, cars kind of ruled um, uh, and still rule, I think, Arizona living in a way that... I think that's very true. Yeah. I think that's very true. And that's very different from where you grew up state new york at least the way that you describe it through yeah. the books yeah. that you've written yeah and i and i'm an, and i'm an only child and that's a that's a story and it's yes that's, that's that's a that's a story in itself as far as barbara and i uh finding each other in this world um but yeah uh, i mean my my experience is mostly small towns and certainly much smaller than than um than tucson uh tucson struck me as uh as very much a big city when i went there uh the university of arizona was uh, larger than the town that I came from, and that was just the University of Arizona was just a small, a small part of Tucson. So that was a that was a bit of a culture shock uh, for me. And and of course, when when Barbara and I got married and we started having a family, um, we've lived almost um, un- until we moved to Portland three years ago. We mm-hmm. had we had lived in a series of small towns or university towns, and so it was it was. Uh, much more a question of, of I think, introducing um, Barbara into a world that was more familiar to me than, than vice versa. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, I mean, that's, uh, Portland's, Portland's still seems to me like kind of a, a small town with a lot of amenities. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it, it's, right. it's, not, it's not the big city, is it? I, and I couldn't, I couldn't go back um, to living in, in Tucson for any length of time. Um, I'm, just, I'm just too used to the East Coast now, and I love... Don't necessarily get on the water, but I do love the water. And um, I mean, my family's still there. I still, I still go visit them. Um, and uh, they, they don't come visit very often. And but um, it's not part. It's not something I, I envision doing. Is is going back to Arizona to live. Um, I'm too, too much in love with this. I love being here in Maine. I recall last winter though there was a there was a time when we <laughs> looked at each true. other. It was long. It was long about February of, of, of that horrible winter we had last year, and we kind of looking at each other and say, "Would it be so wrong <laughs> if, if we if we had a little pied a terre somewhere?" Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, but this this winter has been is has, we've we've been much happier. Been much happier. <laughs> well, I can't really let go this this. I don't know, this teaser that you put out there about you being an only child and Barbara being in a family yeah. of 10 and how yeah. that contributed to your coming together. Talk to me about that. Well, I don't know if it contributed necessarily to us coming together, but it was, um, I think it was, it was really uh, um, 
took some getting used to for, for both of us. Um, I know going, going into your family, just the noise level. <laughs> um, you know, sitting around, they, they didn't have, because there were 10 kids and, and it was a kind of, was one of those houses, your family always inv inviting other people over. So there, there just wasn't a table large enough you know, to to sit all these people around, and mm -hmm. and um, I, I would just I would just have to leave the room from time to time. I'd go out and sit. I'd go out, and I was v considered very antisocial. But just the just the volume uh, of of takes some of, getting used to. <laughs> and I think well, I'll let you talk to the silence. But that must have been as difficult for you coming into um, first marriage and then. Uh, you know, That's, but, but and then when we're with my family, it's just a just a much smaller group, and the silence was problem problematic for you. It at was least in the beginning. It was. It was. It was difficult for me um, to to um, to get used to. I mean, if he if he would go away for a couple of days, we'd be out with friends, and and I'd be back at the apartment by myself. Uh, it took some getting used to to uh, realize I'm alone and. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I could read. I mean, which which I always do, or watch television, yeah. or something like that. But it took it took a lot of getting used to, actually learning to be by myself, and it, that took a long time for me to um, to be comfortable with. And now I love it. I I don't mind yeah. at all. If he goes on away for two or three yeah. days, if I'm by myself, it's great. You yeah. know, I, <laughs> I I don't have to I don't have to. Uh, I don't have to cook. Well, he do, he does all the cooking anyway, so that's not that's not valid. Um, but um, yeah, I just I like I like the quiet and the silence, and I can do what I want to do. Well, I yeah. can relate to this because I think that I mentioned to you that I'm the oldest of ten children, and obviously the oldest daughter. Right. And so right. uh, that's right. The, the people yeah. coming into my life who have had to get used to the volume level, mm -hmm. right. we're not a noisy as individuals. We are not noisy people, but right. collectively, we mm -hmm. are very, very. Yeah. Noisy. <laughs> There's a lot of energy there, mm -hmm. yeah. and and the one thing that I wonder about is, um, Rick, you wrote about what it was like to. Um, care for your mother in mm -hmm. her older years and mm -hmm. the fact that as an only child it was you yeah you, you were the you were the guy and also Barbara and Bar Bar both Barbara of you played were... Barbara played a huge role uh, in that over the especially the last decade of my mother's life when she was ill uh, for for a lot of that um, and yeah I was I was of course envious at the time of, of you know of you know, a lot of our friends, of course, are, are our age, and so it wasn't. I wasn't the only person I knew that had a, a, a parent in failing health, but many of the people that we knew, we were living in Camden at the time. Many of the people we knew mm -hmm. uh, had siblings, and there was a way of kind of, you know, trading off responsibilities and someplace uh, a, 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 a little bit of support. And as an as an only child, um, uh, boy, it was like. It was like an enormous weight, and you know, um, the the weight the weight of caring for um, a sick parent as you're as you're raising children uh, and trying to be trying to be a decent uh, a decent um, husband as well, and 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 write books. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the burden the burden on 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 the only child is is. Um, uh, can be can be pretty stressful, but large families continue to be stressful too, don't they? Mm, I they mean, do. The, the they larger, do. the, the uh, Barbara's family now is um, 
many of them are still in are still in Tucson, but of course, you know, then everybody, you know, we all breed and we all have children and grandchildren, and the more there are of them, the more opportunities for, the more opportunities for all sorts of things. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I don't know, maybe it all works out. Well, it it, it is mm-hmm. interesting for me to have read um, the memoir that you wrote elsewhere. Uh, to read about this back and forth um, between you and Barbara, uh, you know, once you were married, and, mm-hmm. and and your mother, and your teaching, and the book writing, and mm-hmm. Barbara's career, and, mm-hmm. you know, the raising of the children. I mean, it's a very collaborative approach that you're describing. It's something that you really wouldn't have been able to, This the life that you've created now, you wouldn't have been able to do this without being in a partnership. No, no, Barbara. Barbara Bohr, um, um and I'll, I'll say this because I know she won't say it. Of her, I, she won't say it of herself. This simply could not have been done. Um, uh, and I think another woman um, would have been long gone. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I will. I will go to my grave um, owing this lady. <laughs> well, these are strong words. <laughs> How long have you been married? Uh, Forty. Three years. And how did you first meet? You are, you are correct. I was, I was going to let you answer that one. <laughs> I, was just, I was just checking to see if you knew. <laughs> uh, we met um, at the University of Arizona. We were both um, uh, students there. Um, I, we were both members of the, the Newman Center, which is the, you know, the Catholic youth uh, organization on campus. And I was trolling for a good. I was trolling for a good Catholic girl. And that's where, <laughs> that's where we met. <laughs> and at the time, what do you remember your aspirations being? Do you remember saying, "I would like to someday do this"? Um, did you think that you would be a novelist, Rick, mm. or did you think that you would someday be a real estate agent or work with the Wayfinder schools? Did you have any sense for where you were going, together and separately? Um, I didn't have, I mean, I was a business major um, and at the university, um, and I had, I had a part-time job. Um, my, at, being from a large family, there wasn't a lot of money um, for, for college, so I was working part-time to help pay. Uh, pay. Of course, at that time, you know, tuition was probably, for full 12 credits, was probably less than... It's like $300 or something, something like that. Something like that. At the state university. between three and $400. Those were the days. Yeah. <laughs> so, boy, those were the days is right. Um, but if you don't have the $300, then it's... Right. Then and, it, it's, you know, it's expensive. It's, it's, only, it's only cheap if you have the $300. But. So, um, so I was working part-time for um, the company that uh, my father and a group of gentlemen from Hughes Aircraft had left and formed this electronic firm, um, electronics firm called IOTA Engineering. Um, and I started working there in, um, in my, during my summers, and then I would I'd go to school in the morning, do my classes, and then um, go in the afternoon and, and in the office and work. And I was there for 10 years, something like that. I don't know. Um, but I was going to finish my degree and um, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with with uh, that business degree. Um, I often th- I thought about going to library school. Um, but we got married um, when you were a graduate student, and I continued working um, and, and supporting most of the, most of most of the income in those years when I was a graduate student. No surprise uh, was was Barbara's income. Mm-hmm. And 
and at that time, I know you've you've often said that you, because I had no idea I was going to be a writer. So mm, so right. I was I was on track to be some sort of English professor, and that's what Barbara thought our lives were going to be like. She was going I to did. I was I had this this image of us living in a in a in the on the East Coast somewhere, maybe Pennsylvania, being a professor's wife living in an ivy covered brick house. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it. I read too much John O'Hara's what happened. But uh yeah, that's that's that was my vision of, of where our life was going to. I was gonna be a professor's wife and and um probably still work because I always I really loved working. I liked being out with people, so mm-hmm. um and I, I had no intimation whatsoever that I was going to be a writer until probably my last year when I was working on my dissertation, and I uh, uh, kind of caught the bug. I went across the hall to creative writing and, and uh, talked to the director of creative writing and said, you know, I'm thinking uh, maybe I'd like to be a writer. Yeah, this is after like 10 years <laughs> and, and mounting debt, um, deciding to, to be a writer, but, but um, and, and I had several years of apprenticeship before any of that began to... Uh, bear fruit. So, I, I, you know, most of us, I think, uh, are, are mystified uh, by where we end up in life. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not what we planned. It's not what we were thinking. And and uh, you know, I think Barbara and I are both um, at an age right now where, you, where you're looking backward as much as as forward. I'm just, I, I continue to be fascinated in all of my novels by destiny. Uh, how is it? How in the world is it? You just stop one day. And you look at your life and you think, I, I don't, I don't, wouldn't necessarily recommend this to anyone. I have no idea how I got here. And if I did it all over again, it seems to me almost inevitable that I would end up in some other very, very different place than the place that, that, that we, we happen now to occupy on this earth. Mm. I, I did notice that about your, your latest book is mm-hmm. it, it was very sort of, I don't know, contemplative regarding your one's place in the universe as one mm-hmm. ages. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the character Sully in particular, who's, yeah. you know, he's got a bad heart and yeah. he's kind of asking himself, did I, you know, is it worth getting it fixed? Because what do I, what do I have going on? That's so right. great. But any number of characters within the small town that you've gone back to after writing Nobody's Fool. Right. I mean, it's really, you do ask yourself, like, what, what's the bigger purpose in all of this? And I think almost every every character in the book is having that kind of existential uh, uh, is asking that kind of existential question of himself or herself, um, uh, and uh, the whole book takes place over Memorial Day. So so memory um, is uh, is of primary importance to this novel, and uh, and and two or three of the of the characters from Nobody's Fool have died during during the interim um but they remain as as fully alive in this novel miss burl and in, in particular sully's old landlady is a major character in this book and she's been dead for 10 years but she continues to haunt chief of police raymer she she asks sully um uh, um in 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 real life does it trouble you that you haven't done more with the life that God's given you? And it's a question that he's still trying to answer all those mm-hmm. all those years, all those years later. And this is a guy who, like my father, uh, was part of the was was part of the Normandy invasion and and has uh, and 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 was a and was a war hero. But now uh, at age seventy is is trying to say is is asking himself what was all what was all of this really about? 
to know that the two of you have been together for 43 years and to know that neither one of you really said, this is what I'm going to do with my life, mm-hmm. um, is interesting because you you have had to, or you have by choice, moved and shifted with each other over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that's something that in this day and age people realize is going to happen when they enter into a new relationship. When you get married to somebody, Mm -hmm. there's this idea that you are who you are and the other person is who he or she is. Mm -hmm. And then if things don't work out, then that's just too bad and then you go your separate ways. Mm -hmm. But that's not really the way life works. No, you 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 grow into new new skin, new new identity. Um, um, We continue, I think to converse, I think. <laughs> we do a lot of that, yes. We, we talk, we talk. Yeah. And, and the conversations, I don't want to speak for you here, my dear, but it, it seems to me that the conversations um, that we continue to have uh, deep into our now 40-some years of marriage um, have, have remained as, um, uh, as interesting as they were in the beginning, and sometimes you know we're out in restaurants, and we'll we'll see a couple that's roughly our age, and you know they'll be seated across the table from each other, uh, and, and they're not talking. At and, then, all. and they're not talking. They just, you know, they, they, they you, you can you can hear their cutlery, <laughs> <laughs> but but at, over over a course of an hour and a half dinner in a in a restaurant, they they're just not saying anything, and, and you and you wonder. We're always we're always so grateful that that. Um, um, because we hear people say all the time, people our age, they retire, and then, you know, husband and wife are, you know, they're home, and they're having to navigate, <laughs> they're having to navigate each other after all these years where they've, you know, they've, they've been out in the world in different places, and now here they are in the same house. As he, I've, had, I've had guys my age ask me, well, what do you talk about? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm retiring this year. I, I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> I don't know. We, we don't seem to, to have any difficulty finding things to talk about. Um, you know, it's the if it's not the girls and and you know Emily and Kate and and um, now grandchildren and now the grandchildren. We have two two beautiful grandchildren. Um, uh, hell, we talk about. Excuse me. Um, we, talk, <laughs> we talk about we talk about politics. Yeah. Uh, we talk um, a lot about books. We, we're voracious readers, so we're always talking. We're always talking and, about books. Um, and our children love music. Loves music. Um, we all, we argue a lot about uh, the kind of music he likes and the kind of music I like. So, um, and I never get to play my music. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in in the privacy in the privacy of your own headphones. <laughs> <laughs> See? <laughs> well, it's you know you you raise a really valid point, and that is that sometimes we celebrate simple longevity. You know, this couple has been married for 50 years. Right. But it doesn't really speak to the quality no. of the relationship. No. And there can be people who are married for 50 years and don't talk across the table, and they're perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's completely fine. Mm-hmm. And then there are others who look at this lifelong or half a lifelong relationship as being some sort of uh, endurance sport, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and it's not... Yeah. I don't know that that's something that we should all strive for. It's to simply make it through because what is the end point of this life anyway? I, I think that there are there there are people who should split. <laughs> I've always thought that there are people who should split. Uh, you shouldn't split without trying, without mm-hmm. trying really hard. Uh, 
because I, I cannot Im imagine a marriage um, that that doesn't go through its share of struggles. Um, mm. But that said, some people really don't belong together, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 the pain that they continue to inflict upon each other over over uh, year upon year upon year just just seems so futile. I have a chance for happiness anyway. Well, this is as I was reading Everybody's Fool, I mean, there is there is one particular character who I think most people will find deeply disturbing, and this is a person that um, just he can't seem to help himself when it comes to beating on the women yeah. in mm -hmm. his life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he probably would beat on the men if he was a little bit less of a coward. But, mm -hmm. I mean, this the, it, it is interesting to read that novel and to just see that there's just this deeply ingrained pattern that just can't seem to be broken with that right. particular character. Right. And I think we all know people like that. And maybe it's not as extreme as somebody is beats on other people and that's the mm -hmm. patterning. But I think that that's what we all see is that there are some people who get so patterned into something that it's very difficult for them to change. That's the character that you're referring to here. Roy Purdy is is the most disturbing character that I have ever brought yes. out of my psyche. It's it's embarrassing. It's em, it's embarrassing to even talk about him, uh, and and embarrassing to know that that there was that there was something that there was something like him. What is what does it mean that I understand uh, to a degree this 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 character? And I'm not sure that I agree that he would have ever, if he if he'd been a, a bigger guy, would have beaten up on men. I think his I, I think this goes right back to his childhood. Um, I I think that the pleasure that this man derives from punching women, um, um, he, he's been blaming them for everything that's been wrong with his life since he was taught to do so by his father, um, and he has and he is he has arrived at a place where he has almost no other pleasure than that. Uh, That's frightening. Well, this was my question <laughs> for you, Barbara, as you, I'm guessing, are the first person to read what Rick is writing. Yes, I so am. So as you're reading this that your husband is putting down on paper and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this guy's a sociopath. Like, how can this come out of Rick's head? <laughs> exactly. Like, what are you thinking? Uh, well, he's Rick is so... Good creating characters. I, you know, I mean, Roy is is extremely disturbing um, in this in this novel. Um, I, the person closest to that would be from Empire Falls, um, and that the, the student who who shoots. Right. Um, but he's not evil. He's just I've forgotten the name of the character. Uh, Zach. In uh, in Empire Falls. Well, Zach was Tick's boyfriend. That's right, uh, and, I'm, I'm but, and I've and I've forgotten I've forgotten the character's name as well. Uh, yeah, uh, right. But but and he was but he was younger. He and, was younger, and, and, he and was, you get the sense that with he the was right, bullied. If and he, he was bullied, and, and if if he'd have had a wayfinder school, <laughs> maybe maybe because there was still time that that pattern was not so ingrained yet uh, in 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 this boy. Um, that his life could not have been turned around with the, in the right circumstance, with Correct. the right. With, with he the, was lost. He was he was simply lost. This was a boy who had been who had been uh, who had been put in a laundry bag and hung on the back of the door when his parents were doing drug deals. Um, so, if that's what if that's what your life is like at thirteen, and you've had nothing but and you've had nothing but that kind of mistreatment, 
um, you are you are a candidate for something like a school shooting. But on the other hand, um, unlike Roy Purdy, who's Roy Purdy is now there's a, there's a big difference between 17 and 37. And by the time he gets to be 37, if if there's if there's been no intervention. Mm-hmm. A good school, a good teacher, uh, 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 you know, an aunt or uncle. If no one, no, if no one has cared enough to intervene, by that time your chances of, of turning things around are are slim and none. And this is the thing that I love about what you each do in your lives is that you are both simultaneously reading about, writing about. Um, things that are thought-provoking for the rest of us mm-hmm. um, and also doing something about it. So you, so you're both, it's not just let me write about this thought-provoking character who's deeply mm-hmm. disturbing, um, but it's also, okay, where, where can this be turned around? You know, mm-hmm. and where can, in the Wayfinder School, what is there that can be useful so that somebody's life doesn't have to take a necessary path? It can Correct. take a right turn into a different place. Mm-hmm. So that must be very satisfying, I would think. It has. It has been. I mean, we've we've um, um, again just just um, getting to know um, these students on an individual level, um, and um, knowing a little bit of their of their history, um, but what their but what their hopes and their dreams are, and and having them finally finish um, getting their 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 diplomas and and moving on to to. Many of them go on um, to college, and um, we had one student who last year uh, was a recipient of a Mitchell scholarship, which was absolutely wonderful. Um, but they do go on to school, and sometimes they, you know, they don't all want to go on to secondary education, but they'll go um, work. There was one little one young man I think who wanted, who loves to bake, and and he's now working. For um for a bakery, um, I I could uh, I should have made myself a, a huge list of what these students are doing now, but but uh, they're becoming successful um, citizens. Citizens they and are citizens. To, and and giving back to their communities and to their families. Um, uh, one of the programs that that uh, th- within the Wayfinder Schools is called Passages, um, which is a program for uh, teen parents, uh, mostly young women, but occasionally there will be a teen, um, a male uh, father who, who will come in and, and uh, uh, finish his, his, his schooling. But um, we have the teachers actually go uh, work with these, um, young, these young women and their children um, at their residences because teen moms have problems with, um, with child care, Transportation, um, all kinds of things are are in their way in terms of finishing a, a high school diploma. So our tutors, uh, teachers, go to them and work on a program for them or with them. Um, and sometimes it takes them two or three years to finish, um, but it's amazing, um, absolutely amazing. These young women who who finish and and have a goal um, and. Every single one of them says, I want to do this for my child. I do not want my child to do, have the disadvantages that I have had. I want to make sure that our children get an education. Every single one of them is, 
that's their that's their motivation is making sure that their children are are on the same path I would only add to that 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 Barbara has um, one of the ways in which I think our 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 marriage of 43 years has worked is that I spend an awful lot of time in my head um, I I um, uh, I'm I'm bringing these characters to life. I love to tell stories, mm. and I and I and I disappear. You know, one minute my my eyes are looking out at the world, but almost you know, but daily for many many hours they kind of turn around and they look inward. <laughs> you know, and 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 so I am in a in a way less of the world of the real world than Barbara is, mm. and Barbara has always been the one who has. Um, um, through her extraordinary kindness um, and, and generosity um, is the one who has tugged me out of my imagination uh, and, and into the world. Um, I wouldn't have found um, the Wayfinder Schools. Barbara found the Wayfinder Schools. And Barbara has found throughout our, um, our lives together, um, always has found a way of not allowing me to disappear completely from the real world and to get me involved in things that, that, um, that not just things that she finds rewarding, that I find rewarding, um, uh, that, that I wouldn't find but for her. And that, and that just comes from mm -hmm. kindness, uh, I think, um, um, a desire to engage, which comes so naturally to her and so unnaturally to me that I have to be, I have to be, I have to be taken by the hand <laughs> and and moved into that sphere. And the older I get, the more convinced I am um, that nothing really matters as much as kindness. And it's Barbara that has mm -hmm. that that has um, um, tugged me along, sometimes kicking and screaming um, when I was when I was happily inventing things uh, in into the world where where real people need real help. I think that's a that's a very good point. And as you're talking about people who have so many barriers to education, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I can't even, I can't get a ride, I can't get childcare. Mm -hmm. um, those of us who don't have that type of barrier for whom education is, is really a joy, is mm -hmm. really like a mm -hmm. place that we want to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love being inside my head. Mm -hmm. It's it's fun in there most of the time. Some of the time yeah. it's not so fun, but, but you know, it, it's something that if you don't even, if you can't even get to the place where you can in, I don't know, have some small sense of enjoyment about the right. education you're receiving because you can't get to the education itself. Mm -hmm. Right. It just makes it seem so much more difficult. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem with with um, with some of these uh, these young moms. Um, and um, I mean, we have I, Martha um, is the. Um, director of the the passages program and um, she's amazing at being able to to pull people together to um, to make sure that these these moms get the resources that they need you know we'll find ways to, to drive them you know to where they need to go if if they have to get a child to the doctor if they have to um, um, you know go to the grocery store I mean they, we're very resourceful we find ways to make sure that they have all the support that they need, um, and still be able to to you know attend classes, and we'll we'll have them sometimes. Um, the mothers get together at one location 
for a big workshop or something. And that's a wonderful opportunity for, for them to meet each other and support each other. Um, and yeah. also become interested in things that they Absolutely. like to do. Yes. Decide that they like to cook or decide mm-hmm. that they like to write or decide exactly. that they like to do something right. that is more than simply what other people have mm-hmm. always told them that they mm-hmm. can or can't do. It's amazing how in so many spheres, transportation, just moving moving parts, parts. Yes. Um, um, becomes so much the issue. Um, when I've, Barbara and I have both been involved for years, too, with um, an organization called Share Our Strength, which is basically a hunger a hunger organization um, and people often think that the that the problem is that there isn't enough food very often the food is there the food is there you know it's getting that is it's getting getting the food to the hungry mouths and getting the hungry mouths to the food and depending on and depending on where where you live um, you may have the money for the food um, from one source or other but you're half an hour away from the from the from the nearest store that that has fresh fruit and vegetables. So, so finding find it always seems just astonishing that we live at a time in which we can we can buy something with one click, and it magically arrives on our doorstep the next day. Those of us who could have, who can afford to to buy those kinds of things, and yet something is basic something as basic as food as as learning as education we seem to get so hung up on 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 the transportation the delivery aspect mm-hmm. of this something is something is fundamental something as fundamental as food and it just and it's it's we we sometimes it seems like we haven't even really identified the problem if we think it's food and there is, and the food is there <laughs> then then there's some failure of imagination or something mm-hmm. going on there mm-hmm. You have an upcoming event that is going to be um, in honor of and raising money for the Wayfinder School. Yes, and, we do. Um, I wanted to start the conversation just because we're it's going to be the first reading of your book that will be out May 3rd. May 3rd, right. And this is Everybody's Fool, and this is why I'm not reading from that book. And that's going to happen at this event, which is April 28th. I am going to just read um, a little paragraph that I liked from Elsewhere, which is your memoir. Sure. Rick, I won't make you read it because it's kind of a surprise that you probably don't know which one I would even pick, but (laughs) it was from my mother that I learned reading was not a duty but a reward, and from her that I intuited a vital truth. Most people are trapped in a solitary existence, a life circumscribed by want and failures of imagination, limitations from which readers are exempt. You can't make a writer without first making a reader, and that's what my mother made me. Moreover, though I'd outgrown her books, they had a hand in shaping the kind of writer I'd eventually become, one who, unlike many university-trained writers, didn't consider plot a dirty word, and who paid attention to audience and pacing, who had little tolerance for literary pretension. I love this because it, it just... It reminds us all to value all different types of art, including the book and mm-hmm. including the novel, uh, which is something that you've spent most of your life really um, working on, is crafting the mm-hmm. novel. So lest some of us believe that works of fiction are any less important than perhaps a fabulous memoir or mm-hmm. some sort of nonfiction, um, that's... It, it, it's important to remember that these things 
can be equally inspiring, that we can get as much from reading a novel perhaps as from, I don't know, looking at a great work of art. Um, I spend, um, um, as, as you said, I've spent most of my career uh, imagining things, um, telling stories. Um, and um, I, I think that, that for most of us, if we do it, we do it seriously. If we care about our craft, as I, as I do, um, it's based on the belief that making up these lies through making up these lies, we will ultimately arrive at a truth that transcends the mere facts of the case. Um, and I think that that what I, I've, I've, I always hear people say, "Oh, I don't read fiction. I like to I like to read books that are true." And um, I never punch people. <laughs> <laughs> But but I but I can feel my fist <laughs> clenching when, when when somebody says that because it it seems to me that that stories work on a different on a different uh, mode of truth. Each each individual sentence um, is a lie in the sense that you're telling somebody that it had happened and you know full well that it didn't, and so do they, <laughs> right? So but but each but each sentence has a kind of truth to it, and the best books are the books that that have um, um, a true moment followed by another true moment followed by another true moment at, and at the end you have a sense of of life truly lived and that's what we go that's what we go to fiction for we're always what we want to know is what did it feel like um, in in Empire Falls um, um, there is a school shooting but um, the truth in that book is not about school shootings in general. It's about this particular event with these particular with these particular people. And what it does is it, is that it allows readers to know what something in real life feels like. It's not information. It's it's the opportunity to live truly someone else's life. And obviously what you have done has been so important that people are excited to get to hear you read for the first time Everybody's Fool on April 28th for the Wayfinder Schools. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to just learn a little bit more about this and how people can themselves go to hear your reading. Um, so Barbara, tell people, just give us a little bit of information, a little bit of a tease, and so people can go and learn on their own how to um, become part of this. Okay. Um, it, well, it is April 28th um, at uh, Wayne Fleet School on Spring Street in uh, here in Portland. Um, thank you to Wayne Fleet for letting us use their space. Um, and th there will be it starts at six with a with an author um, reception. Uh, Rick will be there, um, and you can go to uh, the Wayfinder School's website. The tickets go on sale March 10th, I believe. Uh, tickets for um, for the uh, reception and the reading, the con actually it's a conversation with um, uh, Rick and Josh Bodwell, who is the director of Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. Um, two of them are going to be in conversation. Um, the tickets for for both the, the uh, um, 
reception and the conversation are $100. And with that, you get a signed first edition copy of Everybody's Full. Um, and Several it, days and before it goes on sale. Exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, general admission, if you just wanted to listen to Rick and Josh talk, um, is $35. Well, I, for one, um, you would never have to punch me because fiction, <laughs> fiction is That was the wrong metaphor, wasn't it? <laughs> I think people understand. Um, fiction is one of the, I, I think that I, when I think of the most delicious treat that someone could possibly offer me, it's probably a work of fiction. I love to yeah. read all books, but mm-hmm. fiction yeah. is where my heart is, I believe. And um, Everybody's Fool, really wonderful book i mean the crafting of it but not but not Mm -hmm. crafting like in a in your face crafting way but very and the ideas that you've brought out and it was absolutely worth that time for me to read it before we sat down and i feel so lucky because i don't think that many people have had this opportunity so Mm -hmm. um you're one of a handful (laughs) and it it, I, i encourage people who are listening to um to go to the Wayfinder School benefit to find out more about the Wayfinder School, but to also read Everybody's Fool. Probably they should go back and all, read all, all of your other books. I know you have a project coming up with the artist Lyndon Frederick, which yes. is uh, about a year or about a year in advance of that. I think so, but it's it's a fascinating project. So um, can you come back on and tell us about that at some point? You of think? course, of course. So we'll there's bring, a little we'll, teaser. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll get we'll get we'll get Lyndon and maybe maybe Heather and. Uh, Barbara, if you want to come back on too, we're, we're neighbors. We're just a couple doors uh, apart and, yeah. um, uh, uh, here in here in Portland. So it would be it would be lovely uh, to come in and talk about that project because I think it's it's, it's rare and 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 interesting. And I think people will 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 be. Uh, fascinated to learn about it oh, well, we're, so we're giving just enough information right. just enough <laughs> preview, so people will be waiting with yeah. bated breath to yeah. hear what's going to happen in the next year yeah. but for now they'll go listen to you on april 28th for the wayfinder school um, benefit to hear you read uh, everybody's fool and also talk with josh bodwell it's really been a pleasure talking with the two of you today and to have you in and um thank you so much well, well, thank, thank you thank you so us. much for 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 your interest We appreciate it. You have been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 238, Wayfinding. Our guests have included Barbara and Richard Russo. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our wayfinding show. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, main magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, 
visit us at lovemainradio.com. 